0: Good morning, Northampton. Hello, world. This is Vegan Radio (laughs) with Megan Shackleford.
1: Derek Goodwin. Keep talking, baby.
0: we got another great episode of Vegan Radio coming up. This is the Spirituality and Veganism Vegetarianism Show.
1: We have special guests, um, Carol Adams.
0: And Will Tuttle.
1: Carol Adams, the... Well known authority on veganism and feminism and now spirituality too.
0: And Will Tuttle, who has written. What book has he written?
1: The World Peace Diet.
0: The World Peace Diet. (laughs) He makes connections between food and spirituality.
1: And also, we have some um, more local vegetarian, vegan, spiritual people that are gonna give their perspectives too going to be a great show so i hope you're gonna stay tuned
2: because
1: we're about to get naked
0: <laughs> for the naked news <laughs> hold on listeners
1: been it's been two episodes since we did this and uh everyone's been waiting
0: you guys are in. you're in for the naked news <laughs> i know
1: it <laughs> all right you ready to go Mike's?
0: i'm ready bring it on
1: what's our first story
0: our first story is Moby could be the first vegan to be propelled into space. The outspoken bald vegan has booked a seat on one of the early Richard Branson-led Virgin Galactic space flights. Moby has paid the paltry sum of $207,000 for the privilege. He narrow, narrowly beat Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction and Robbie Williams to the chance, who are tentatively scheduled to go up in later space flights, reports undercover.
1: I this, think we should build our own rocket and go before him. <laughs> we could put ourselves on the map.
0: I don't think it's going to work out, but you know? I'll, let you, I'll let you go with that one. Ground
1: control the to Major Tom. Ground control the to Major Tom. Take your tofu pills and put your helmet on This is Major Tom to ground control
2: I'm stepping through the door And I'm floating in a most peculiar way And the stars look very different Say.
0: Space flights are set to take place in 2010. And the next very exciting story, vegan chewing gum with calcium and B12. Wow. How'd that story slip in there? (laughs) Whole Foods, that's not very exciting compared to movie. Well, you know,
1: some vegans don't like to buy uh, vitamin pills, so this is a good way for the bubblegum vegans to get their
0: That's true. Listeners, I'm a bubblegum vegan. (laughs) (laughs) Whole Foods and many natural food stores now carry bee-fresh gum sweetened with xylitol in a variety of flavors. Spearmint, cinnamon, bubblegum, and mixed fruit. Vegans can now rejoice that there is a chewing gum without gelatin, gelatin-based softeners, or beeswax, and it provides 100% of one's daily requirement of vitamin B12. It doesn't get any better than this.
1: What kind of gums have gelatin in them?
0: Um, I think the kinds you like. Uh,
1: <laughs> juicy it's fruit. It's kind of nasty. <laughs> or like chewing on cow hooves and intestines and stuff.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't want to think about that. Okay. Not this early in the morning.
1: Can you blow, blow bubbles with that stuff?
0: Um, I don't know. Can you? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see any difference. On to our next story. Vegetarian schnitzel. Can you all say that, listeners? Schnitzel. Sales give traditional... chicken. <laughs> schnitzel. Vegetarian schnitzel sales give traditional chicken a pecking. I
1: thought pecking was ducks.
0: I don't know. You wrote this. Peaking duck. <laughs> <laughs> Schnitzel is still a mainstay of the Israeli diet, but consumers may be surprised to hear that sales of the vegetarian variety are surpassing the traditional breaded chicken breast in the frozen food section of supermarkets by a 3 to 2 margin, even though only 10% of the population is vegetarian. What's going on? More than half of the Israeli population eats ready-made Meat substitute products regularly with children between the ages of 4 and 14 being the primary consumers. Chicken schnitzel consumption is also led by children, followed by singles and couples aged 20 to 28. Factors contributing to the increased popularity of both vegetarian and chicken-based ready-made products were the increase in employment among women, increased nutritional consciousness, a more time-pressured lifestyle, an increase in microwave oven ownership, bad listeners, bad, and an increase in single member households, the Credit Information Association said. Animal rights group, Let the Animals Live, praise the findings. Soon they, there will be schnitzel on the plate, so chickens are treated as if they're just schnitzel when they're alive as well, said the organization's spokeswoman, Eddie Eltman, who deplored the shocking and horrific conditions.
1: What's this organization?
0: <laughs> organization.
1: <laughs> Can we get schnitz- schnitzel over here, or is it just in Israel?
0: I don't want schnitzel over here, (laughs) vegetarian or not. sounds like a sausage product. Um, Sounds
1: like our next coming up story.
0: (laughs) Eddie Altman deplored the shocking and horrific conditions in which chickens are transported, kept, and slaughtered. Oh, our next story, the Sausage King. (laughs) (laughs) Sausage King found dead in his cell. Oh, no. This story's crazy. The self-proclaimed San Leandro Sausage King sentenced to death in February for murdering three meat inspectors during a 2000 rampage, was found dead in late December on death row at San Quentin Prison. Guards found Stuart Alexander, aged 44, unresponsive and not breathing about 4.30 a.m. in a suicide watch cell. Although Alexander had been put on suicide watch on Christmas Eve and had been receiving psychiatric care, it did not appear that the former San Leandro Merrill candidate had killed himself, Messick said.
1: So that necklace of sausages around his neck wasn't a, <laughs> a noose?
0: <laughs> they didn't let him have sausage in the, t- in the cell. Oh,
1: well, I bet they did. I
0: don't think I so. I bet he
1: got lots of, lots of sausage in there.
0: Officials found no signs <laughs> of foul play and believe Alexander died of natural causes, authority said. In February of 2005, an Alameda County Superior Court judge sentenced, sentenced Alexander to death. Four months after a jury found him guilty of three counts a first-degree murder in the shooting deaths of three U.S. Department of Agriculture inspectors. The June 21st, 2000 rampage at Alexander Santos Linguisa factory was caught on his very own security cameras. Alexander also was convicted of attempted murder for chasing another inspector and firing five shots at him. Willis escaped injury. During a six-month trial, jurors repeatedly watched surveillance camera footage showing Alexander shooting each of the inspectors in the head after having already sprayed them with gunfire. Prosecutors said he had killed them as they tried to cite him for allegedly selling sausage without government approval. No,
1: Mr. Sausage King, no! No, please spare my life. Please, Sausage King, you bastard. You bastard. Wow. Secret sausage. So well that just goes to show the link between um working in a slaughterhouse and being violent outside of your work.
0: There you have it. You run (laughs) you run a violence. Yep.
1: Violence begets violence.
0: You run a factory farm. Remember
1: that listeners.
0: You turn to violence. Alexander was known to hoard food in jail and had a penchant for peanut butter, authorities said. (laughs) (laughs) Peanut butter and sausage.
1: Maybe he couldn't get sausage after all.
0: Although he was thin at the time of the slayings, he had gained so much weight by the time his trial was underway that one witness almost didn't recognize him when asked to identify him. You see where that gets you, listeners? (laughs) Don't eat a lot of sausage.
1: Wow. (laughs) That's a great story.
0: (laughs) Okay, now for my favorite story. Cat called 911 to help ill owner. <laughs> Police aren't sure exactly how else to explain it, but when an officer walked into an apartment Thursday night to answer a 911 call, an orange and tan striped cat was lying by a telephone on the living room floor. <laughs> the cat's owner, Gary Rosehuizen, was on the ground near his bed having fallen out of his wheelchair. Rose Heisen said his cat Tommy must have hit the right buttons to call 911. <laughs> I know it sounds kind of weird, Officer Patrick Doherty said, unsuccessfully searching for some other explanation. Rose Heisen uh-huh. said he couldn't get up because of pain from osteoporosis and mini strokes that disrupt his balance. He also wasn't wearing his medical alert necklace and couldn't reach a cord above his pillow that alerts paramedics that he needs help. Doherty said police received a 911 call from Rose Heisen's apartment. But there was no one on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Police police called back to make sure everything was okay. And when no one answered, they decided to check things out.
1: They just heard a purring sound in the background.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's when Doherty found Tommy next to the phone. Rose Heisen got the cat three years ago to help lower his blood pressure. He tried to train him to call 911, unsure if the training ever stuck. The phone in the living room is always on the floor, and there are 12 small buttons, including a speed dial for 911 right above the button for, for the phone. He's my hero, Rose Heisen said. <laughs> <laughs> now, let it be said, you, everybody says dogs are smarter than cats. I think we know what's going on here. I think we know exactly what's going on.
1: Uh, he just wanted to get fed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that could be true, but, <laughs> but still, just as smart as dogs. Our next story, Sea Shepherd Sideswipe's Japanese Whaling Supply Ship. On January 8, 2006, the flagship of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, the Farley Mowat, chased the outlaw Japanese whaling fleet out of the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary after ramming the Japanese whaling supply ship Oriental Bluebird. Captain Paul Watson ordered the Japanese-owned Panamanian ship to leave the Antarctic Whale Sanctuary. The Japanese supply ship was waiting to rendezvous with the Nishin Maru to continue the offloading of whale meat for transport back to Japan. Watson said, I informed the Oriental Bluebird that I was acting under the authority of the United Nations World Charter for Nature to uphold international conservation regulations prohibiting the slaughter of whales in the Antarctic Whale Sanctuary. When they refused, we backed up the message by slamming our starboard hull against their starboard hull. So cool. <laughs> there is.
1: We got to go out on one of those <laughs> voyages.
0: Do you want to tell the listeners? Do you be like
1: being a pirate? You
0: know. Yeah. So, so the Sea Shepherd is is um, this ship full of vegans that basically <laughs> full of vegans, <laughs> vegans and they're vegetarians. Not all vegans. Well, they're they're activists. <laughs> they're vegan and vegetarian activists. Ship full of vegans and um and they go out and basically. Kind of physically attack other boats if if other boats are boats or ships are doing kind of illegal illegal whaling, illegal whaling or Ill- illegal fishing activities.
1: I think mostly whaling. Okay. Are oh, they also um, trying to disrupt the um, uh, the seal slaughter in Canada too?
0: You're disrupting me. There is no damage apparent <laughs> to either ship aside That's from a job, long <laughs> baby from a long scratch along the hull of the Oriental Bluebird, now referred to as the SS Whale Meat caused by a device attached to the Farley-Moet's hull called the can opener. (laughs) The blow was meant as a warning to convey the seriousness of our order for them to leave the area and to stop assisting with the illegal slaughter of whales. The Reuters News Agency reported that the confrontations between whale defenders and whalers in the Southern Oceans could result in the failure of Japan to take its full self-appointed quota. The disruptions have cost the Japanese more than 15 days of lost whaling time. This means that Paul Watson's crew has been 50% effective in keeping them them from killing whales. Watson says, we have found the key to saving the whales. When we approach, they run from us. They are afraid of us, and we want them to be afraid of us. All we need to be 100% effective is a long-range vessel capable of matching the speed of the Nishin Maru. With the right ship, we can save whales. Excellent. Excellent. And now, for our next story, which we all know is going on, U.S. government is spying on vegans.
1: Oh, yeah, they're listening to us right now. <laughs> I
0: know they are. They're tracking us.
1: I'm sure George Bush just woke up to tune into <laughs> vegan radio. <laughs> the,
0: AC, the ACLU...
3: They're terrorists.
0: They're terrorists. Morlock, like the terrorist. the The ACLU of Georgia released copies of government files on Wednesday that illustrate the extent to which the FBI the DeKalb County Division of Homeland Security and other government agencies, have gone to compile information on Georgians suspected of being threats simply for expressing controversial opinions. More than two dozen governmental surveillance photographs show 22-year-old Caitlin Childs of Atlanta and other vegans picketing against meat-eating in December 2003. They staged their protest outside a honey-baked ham store Good. (laughs) Somebody's got to get those guys out of there. (laughs) On on Buford Highway in DeKalb County.
1: Honey and ham, that's like double (laughs) non-vegan.
0: An undercover DeKalb County Homeland Security detective was assigned to conduct surveillance of the protests and the protesters and take the photographs. The detective arrested Childs and another protester after he saw Childs approach him and write down on a piece of paper the license plate number of his unmarked government car. They told me if I didn't give over the piece of paper, I would go to jail, and I refused, and I went to jail. And the piece of paper was taken away from me at the jail, and the officer who transferred me said that was why I was arrested, Child said. The ACLU wants Congress and the courts to order government agencies, including the FBI, to stop unconstitutional surveillance. The ACLU of Georgia may sue the government in order to define, once and for all, what unconstitutional surveillance is in a post 911 America. As for Caitlin Childs' protest against meat-eating, the files obtained by the ACLU include the DeKalb County Homeland Security Report on the surveillance of Childs and the others. The detective wrote that he ordered Childs to give him the piece of paper on which she had written his license tag number, telling her that he did not want her or anyone else to have the tag number of his undercover vehicle. The detective wrote that Childs was hostile, uncooperative, and boisterous toward the officers. Childs said today that the guest's that the agents shouldn't have been there in the first place, squelching legal dissent.
1: We should get Caitlin on this show. That would be good.
0: (laughs) Call her up. up. That's it.
1: We'll get her number from the government.
0: That's it for the naked Uh, news. I think we have
1: one more thing we wanted to mention. Um, We've uh, lost another great vegan, Coretta Scott King.
0: Oh, Martin Luther King's wife just passed away a few Mm days ago. 1927 to
1: 2006, she died at age 78. I guess she had a stroke or something a couple of years ago. Just wanted to mention that. And that's it. And now we're going to segue right into our veganism and spirituality show. This is Farmer Brown, and you are listening to Vegan Radio on WXOJLP Northampton and online
4: at www.veganradio.com.
1: All right, we're back, and this next segment of our show is going to be spirituality and veganism. We interviewed six different spiritual gurus, and we got uh, five different questions we asked them, and we're going to mix together the answers. Who are these gurus, Maggie?
0: We got Will Tuttle, Carol Adams, Scott Kessel from Ronnie Arbo and Daisy Mayhem, Goose Love, New also York known City, as Rich Montone. Yep, New York City folk poet, Jen Ed. And Nancy Love.
1: Nancy Love, veganica artist who does paintings in the uh, Tibetan tanka style after training under a Tibetan. Uh, Megan once trained under a Tibetan, (laughs) but that's a story for another day. (laughs) 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 So the um, first question we asked our interviewees is, would you please briefly describe your spiritual practice?
3: Will Tuttle. I am based. I would say primarily in the Zen tradition. Um, I was you know, born and raised in a pretty typical New England, uh, meat and potatoes family, Episcopalian. Uh, but when I was in college, I started questioning everything and I got in, interested in I went primarily into Buddhism and uh, went on a spiritual pilgrimage actually when I was 22. I left home and I walked uh, across the, the country with no money. And uh, I ended up heading, finally heading south, and I walked all the way to Alabama. I lived in a Zen center in Alabama. Um, before that, I lived in a farm in Tennessee, and that, that was pretty much a Zen-based community. But then the Zen center in Alabama, I lived uh, there and then in, in the Tibetan Buddhist center for a few years in San Francisco. And then uh, I, lived, I shaved my head and took vows and became a monk in Korea, uh, as a Zen monk in Korea and that was back in the mid 80s and then came back to this country and i pretty much continue my practice i meditate one and a half to two hours every day well actually in korea when i was a monk there uh, that was a complete vegan community you can imagine litium you know, going to a community that had been vegan for 700 years wow it was really empowering that's when i became a real vegan i mean i was more or less a vegan before that but i would occasionally you know have something this or that. Just being there, we didn't even talk about it, but it was so powerful to be in a community where it was just not even an option to wear leather or to eat any flesh or milk or dairy or um, to even kill a mosquito. Nancy Love.
5: My spiritual practice is that since 1973, I've been meditating twice a day for 20 minutes, and I do a lot of self observation. After that, I ask for spiritual guidance. I have spiritual guides. The form of meditation I do is just plain old vanilla TM, and uh, I do some yoga. I've been interested in religion for many years. I studied with a Rhodes scholar who taught uh, Episcopal ministers, and I studied religions of the world, and I studied philosophy of religion, and I also studied Jesus seminars. And I've taken a few classes of Tibetan Buddhism, but I've never been able to embrace one religion. I embrace parts of many, both, mostly what I believe Jesus really meant, which was simply love one another, and the Buddhist practice, which is not so much for a religion because they don't believe in a god, and according to my encyclopedias, that's not a religion, but it's a Uh, Science of mind, actually, it's a practice of the mind. Oh, and then I'm also attracted to the science of mind, the power of the mind, and creating with the mind.
6: Scott Kessel.
4: I'm uh, training as a priest at the Small Forest Temple, which is a Chan temple in Middletown, Connecticut. In a word or two, it's the marriage of Buddhism and Taoism with the martial arts as an integral part of the whole. One of of the foundations of the practice is helping to save all beings from suffering. As a part of that, of course, there's no no killing. Through combination of meditation, sitting meditation, bowing, chanting, and martial arts, you're basically trying to unlearn everything that culture and society and parents and friends and family have taught you about who you are and be able to see yourself for who you truly are and that way you're more able to help other people. Jen Ed.
7: I am a Tantra Yogini. Um, I teach yoga in all of its forms. So there are eight limbs of the yogic system. So it's not just the physical asana practice. Um, So my personal spiritual practice is one of first yamas and miyamas, which are right truth and right action, which is kind of where my almost veganism comes in. asana practice, the physical practice of yoga, meditation, um, chanting, mantra, pranayama, breath work, um, karma yoga, which is, again, kind of actions, but it's more of a, um, not just my own personal actions, but actually doing for others, and then the, the study of uh, ancient philosophies and spiritual philosophies, and for me, that's not just in the yoga ground, but also branching into uh, everything from Christianity to Judaism to just beginning to start a little bit of understanding about what Islam's about um, and Wicca and Paganism and just about anything you want to throw in there and just finding out how it all kind of boils down and interacts with one another.
8: Rich Montone. So currently my spiritual practice involves meditation by myself and in a group in the Zen meditation tradition attending Unitarian Universalist worship on most Sunday. And I attend a lot of chapel at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York where I go to school. But I've come to a place in my spiritual journey where I've realized that every moment is really an opportunity for spiritual practice. And it's not something that just occurs when you're meditating and it's not something that just occurs when you're singing hymns on Sunday. Those are flashpoints where you can kind of assess the spiritual vibrance of your life that you've been enjoying and envision the kind of spiritual vibrance that you would like to enjoy in the days that are about to come, if that's what you want to do with the time. But really, uh, walking in the park, reading a book, whether it be a so-called sacred text or a so-called secular text, or even watching a movie um, is spiritual practice as long as you're open to it being so? Carol Adams.
9: In the inner art of vegetarianism, I suggest that vegetarianism, well plant-based vegetarianism, veganism, is a spiritual practice. That through that spiritual practice, we access the, a deep part of ourselves that says, "I can be aware of what the other animals experience, and I can." change my life so that I'm not impacting them in a way that says uh, my life is more important than their life but I also have a spiritual practice of writing of journaling every morning and a spiritual practice of yoga and walking and I'd say the veganism vegetarianism spiritual practice has had just a deep impact on my life in terms of realizing how deeply animals had touched me and how important it was to recognize that food is one way we are in relationships with animals and with a sense of connectedness that I think spirituality is all about.
1: Okay, we're back again. And now it's time for question number two. Do you have any thoughts on the last round of questions, Megan?
0: Any (laughs) thoughts? Um, It's interesting to hear people's... Uh, different routines and what they consider spiritual practice you Quite know diverse. Some, very diverse some people just like Carol Adams just walking to her as a meditation for rich he says anything can be you know part of his spiritual practice i what movies he
1: is he was talking about <laughs> I Wonder if he goes and like sees action movies and like, yeah, I can feel God, man, you think
0: I don't know you'll have to ask him that'll be another <laughs> another interview. And um, I,
1: saw, I saw Jesus in the Matrix.
0: You saw Jesus in the Matrix? Yeah, oh. about 40 times, too. <laughs> all right, question number two. Do you connect your vegetarianism to your spirituality, and if so, how? Jen, Ed.
7: The first two limbs of a yoga practice are the yamas and the yamas. And so
0: in practicing
7: right action, and this also feeds into the idea of karma and karma yoga, all of your actions affect not only you as an individual earthly human self but kind of the the universal or if this resonates with anyone the divine self and so um and that's not in a in a uh, specious context every being is in this universal web, so every being should be honored and respected and so just as i wouldn't kill another human being i wouldn't kill an animal or um, use a product that an animal had to be killed for. All that you put out in your intention um, both comes back to you on an energetic level, so you'd be kind of polluting yourself, um, but also you're kind of harming the sphere of, of this hopeful balance that I think we all seek um, to live in a peaceful environment not that that necessarily is manifesting currently but um that that's the
2: hope rich montone in so
8: many ways i certainly connect my vegetarianism or i should say my veganism to my spirituality because again where everything that you do reading books watching films going to church meditating eating you know it's all a spiritual practice and it's all an opportunity to to be thankful and to be the change that you want to see and to exercise the soul, so to speak. You know, a big thing of many world religions is the teaching of compassion and how one can enrich their own life by giving compassion to the world. How can you not see being vegetarian or being vegan as an act of compassion? You know, especially a lot of the arguments for compassion when vegetarians or vegans are trying to convince omnivores shall we call them why being vegan or vegetarian is a compassionate thing to do they often try to argue from the point of the animals you know it's a compassionate act to show your compassion and your love toward the animals and as someone who's a vegan I totally eat that up you know I really agree with that and I think that that's a wonderful place to argue from and one of the most important reasons as to why I have chosen to be vegan but When speaking with an omnivore, sometimes I find it helpful to speak in terms that might be a little bit more immediately relevant to their omnivore life. So say you have this omnivore who, you know, say they're a Christian, right? And, And they're following the precepts that, you know, Jesus has offered where you should love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Well, many of us know that it takes, you know, what, 22 pounds of grain to produce one pound of flesh that you can actually eat, and instead of creating that 22 pounds of grain so then we can feed it to a cow, so then we can get one meal out of that cow for one person out of three meals in a particular day, we could be eating that grain to feed more people that we're supposedly trying to show our compassion toward. Um, and if people aren't ready to take the leap, which I hope everyone will make one day where Um, they realize that, you know, acts of compassion are not just incumbent upon us to perform toward other humans, but toward everything that is a being on the earth. If they can start making the jump where they realize being vegan or vegetarian is an act of compassion toward other humans as well, I think that's how my compassion and my spirituality and my vegetarianism and veganism combine. Carol Adams. I
9: guess I'd like to say that I think that when I became a vegetarian, I did not necessarily think of it as a spiritual practice. It was only after I had been journaling and practicing yoga that I woke up early one morning and started writing about cooking and the feeling of connectedness I had to cooking and this great sense of joy that I was a vegan and it came to me that veganism was a spiritual practice. And in fact, that was the original title of the inner art of vegetarianism, was veganism as a spiritual practice. But at that point, veganism wasn't well known, and so my publisher didn't think the book would do well with that title. I've always sort of felt sad that I didn't keep that title, because I felt that it sort of the medium was the message. By having that title, it was helping invite people to deepen their own vegan practice to a practice to recognizing the interconnectedness and grace that is uh, the act of being a vegan.
3: Well, it's totally connected. Um, I think I've more or less answered that with the idea of ahimsa, which means nonviolence, which is the core of the teaching, I think, really of all the religions. Um, But basically that whatever I'm putting out uh, will come back. So if I'm harmful to others, not only does it harm them, but it harms me. It's not, not physically, but it definitely harms me spiritually. But so If I want to grow spiritually, I have to be kind to others. And, and others mean any others that can suffer. So vegetarianism, or veganism really, is I think the proper word is, I think, essential to a spiritual path. In order to grow spiritually, we, we are called to, to see that we are not separate from others, that we're all in this together and we're all interconnected. Nancy Love.
6: Okay, I did
5: not become a vegetarian for spiritual reasons. I became a vegetarian because I love animals. I became a vegetarian one year almost to the date after starting to meditate, so there may be a connection there that I wasn't aware of. I actually wanted to be a vegetarian when I was eight years old, and my parents were absolutely adamant that that is something I could not do. I do think, however, that... The freedom from guilt that I think everybody has a low level of guilt because everybody knows what factory farming is. And knowing I am not in any active way supporting that enables me to have more peace of mind. I've certainly heard other... um, People say they have a lightness of being, an elevation of energy, an increased psychic ability. I know that I do have uh, some psychic ability, but again, it wasn't, it was several years after becoming a vegetarian when I started doing a lot of growth groups.
0: Ed, one of the interviewees, gave us her spoken word performance piece, One Breasted President. And here it is. I want a one breasted president.
10: Someone who lives in a high risk category with nothing to lose. Someone not tied to a political party, a union, a corporation. A one breasted president. Someone not tied to American corporate faith based charities. American corporate money. I want a one breasted warrior. I want her to tell us what to do with our oceans, our forests, our bodies. I'd like to hear her definition of mass destruction. A one-breasted warrior who would build a house that's not so white. A house built on bedrock. Not the cigarette butts and shotgun shells of the NRA, the FDA. I want her to stand up and say, Mr. Speaker, I will not be another statistic. I will not be put into a box marked some parts not included assembly is required I want a menopausal Pope someone who has bled and created life I'd like to hear her thoughts on contraception, masturbation Americanization, globalization, populations dying while we eat genetically engineered food drink chemically treated water and buy enough insurance to cover the medical bills I want Do you know what I had? I had a one-breasted mother. One breast, no uterus, and a yellow bloated liver. She was the incredible shrinking woman. Shrinking under her bible, her husband. Mother, I needed her to wear her scars and go bald in public. Not tied to a Bible, a husband, a mother who all silently agreed not to talk about it. He voted for Reagan while she baked cookies. You know, she never talked about it. She never talked about being sick. I wonder if she talked to God. She talked about God she prayed she prayed for people over people she went to prayer groups but i wonder if she talked to her god because she sure didn't talk to me now it's 20 years later and i'm living in a high-risk category with a president Who lost in a nation shrinking under its Bible, its media, its money, its omissions, its omissions, its admissions, its backrooms, its boardrooms, its payoffs, its police stations, its courtrooms, its blow it up, throw it away, suck it, dry politics. And what if one day, God, it could be right now? One tiny cell somewhere around my Texas, my Missouri, or Illinois, yes, to the south or the west, decides to turn against me. And that little bastard cell starts dividing and multiplying, multiplying and dividing, growing and growing until they wheel me down that long. hall, carve out my mountains, strip mine my fertile valleys, pump my streams full of toxic chemicals until my hair falls out and my skin turns yellow until I don't want to live in this country inhabit this planet, this body, anymore. And I wonder, will I stand up, open my mouth,
0: or shrink under my fear? Okay, that ends our round two questions.
1: Round three coming up. What are our interviewees going to win if they answer correctly, Megzi?
0: A Buddha lamp? (laughs) A Buddha lamp? (laughs)
1: Megan's (laughs) jealous of my Buddha lamp. You know jealousy is a sin, don't you, Megan? (laughs) (laughs) We have a Buddha lamp that our uh, friend Anna Banana, you might have heard on a past show, um, gave to me when she moved to California.
0: You'll regret it, Anna. You'll (laughs) regret it!
1: (laughs) We've uh, We've been eyeing that lamp for six or seven years now.
0: enough about us question number three
1: i don't think it's good to uh to have attachment to a buddha lamp
0: (laughs) (laughs) read the question what would the buddha say
1: oh number three tell us about your creative outlets and how you connect creativity to spirituality and or veganism
8: rich montone when one produces a creative work be it a poem painting a piece of music I can't see how that isn't simultaneously an expression of both the context of your life and whatever point in your spiritual journey that you happen to be on. The spiritual journey is something that you, in my experience, encounter within. And by encountering it within, you share it with everything that's around you. And so whenever you do some sort of outward representation of that spiritual journey that you're encountering within, be it a lecture that you offer, be it a poem that you write, that's going to be some kind of representation of the spiritual journey that you're on. At the same time, anything that we create is autobiographical in some way, because it refers to what we have come to know as being true from the context of our life. So our brothers and our sisters, or our favorite colors, or the city, or the town where we live, or where we grew up, or the diet that we eat, no doubt affects what's coming out of us as cultural creative. Doing creative things in one form or another for, wow, it'll be 16 years now. Um, I started off as as an MC. From there, I started working with some acoustic folk musicians and had a project going called Rhythm Folk Poetry. After that, once my music partner Joe Bridge decided he needed to move to Washington and pursue life's joys out there, um, I turned my focus to working as a performance poet. And since then, I've been writing poetry for both the page and the stage because poetry, sometimes written exclusively for the stage, doesn't hold up as well on the page as poetry written expressly for the page, so I do a little stage poetry, a little page poetry, and a little hybrid of the two as well.
6: Nancy Love.
5: Well, my creative outlets are my reason for being on this planet. I I feel like, and this is an intuitive thing that I couldn't explain rationally at all, I feel like I'm supposed to be here to make a difference through art. I felt that way for a very, very long time. And my very first artwork was watercolor and gouache, and it was spiritual. As soon as I got out of college and while I was in college, I did what they told me to do. But um, my very first piece was on my 29th birthday, and it was very spiritual. It even had places for chakras, except I didn't know about chakras. I knew the words but I didn't know what they were. And I put these these flowers, these seven flowers on this woman's body. And it was a time of, I was doing growth groups and really um, deep personal questioning. And when I woke up that morning during meditation, I, I had this vision. And it wasn't until I became really aware of the plight of animals. That's when I said, okay, my art all needs to go to making a difference for animals.
6: Scott Kessel.
5: Well,
4: I am a musician and a visual artist. I'm a percussionist with Ronnie Arbo and Daisy Mayhem, and I do various freelance studio recording as well on drums and percussion. Uh, I'm also a visual artist and design and build exhibits. Right now, down at the Kid City Children's Museum in Middletown, Connecticut, so where I do everything from the initial brainstorming to the carpentry to concrete work to mosaics and carving and mural painting. It's all at, at some level geared towards other people. Uh, I mean, it's it's something that I I need to do for myself to to stay sane. But in music, when I'm performing, I'm definitely I feel like I'm not performing because I need people's attention, but um, it's more like providing a service to spread some joy, and ideally, I like to think that it serves as a, I don't want to say escape because that's that's not the right word, but it gives people a chance to step outside themselves for long enough to potentially see something from a new perspective or once they return, you know, after a concert, once they're back into their old lives they think, Oh, you know, maybe I don't have to live quite the same way that I've been living or I've always known that if I'm following my heart and doing what that which kinda keeps you awake at night and wakes you up in the morning and gets you going. And if you're really following your heart, the doors open. Carol Adams.
9: Well I think cooking is a creative outlet. I sort of have an agreement with my family that the first time around I'll use the recipe, but after that I don't have to and uh so I learn. I, it's a constant process of learning new ways of using plant foods, using tofu. And then I have a, a great joy when I can create meals that people enjoy and, you know, they they forget that it's vegan. They are just enjoying the food and saying, oh, you know, I can eat your food all the time. There's a, a great joy in cooking. I think that it's a meditative practice, the chopping Kneading dough. I think spiritual practice accesses joy for us. So I think it's a creative act, cooking, vegan cooking. Um, for me, writing is a deeply, deeply important creative act, and I, I don't know what I'd do if I, I if I couldn't write, if that weren't a part of my life. I find that walking is a very creative thing and that I've had some of my best ideas walking. I have to be sure to have a piece of paper with me or else I have to turn around because I can only remember three new ideas when I walk. I find walking very stimulating for my creativity. So I see them all sort of interconnected. When you have a sense of yourself as having a relationship to the universe that's creative, I think you realize what a great gift the creation is that you're a part of. I think it's sometimes hard. I think that for vegans, there can be a lot of anger around what happens to animals, anger at the idea that people are eating foods that really are killing them. I mean, there's a a lot of very powerful emotions that can awaken through veganism. I think a spiritual practice helps us focus those emotions and not let them overwhelm us and also helps us access the joyful part and I think creativity and, and having a sense of your own creativity is, is part of the joyful aspect of veganism and my goodness we we need, definitely need that in our lives
3: Will Tuttle. main creative outlet I guess is music uh, although I also write, you know, I have a book out called The World Peace Diet which is basically about how our spiritual health and veganism are so connected. But music, I think, um, I play the piano, I have lots of CDs out, and I do concerts every weekend from somewhere in the country, so I'm always playing concerts. But to me, um, the, the music comes from somewhere beyond me. You know, I, I, It's a mystery, ultimately, I guess, where a melody emerges from. And so I've always found as a musician for the last 30 years that I have to be tuned in to something beyond just my accumulated mental noise. You know, I have to get out of the way and connect with something spiritual and allow that to come through me, and I do that really f- the motivation is to, to um, bless the world and to bring peace to the world and to bring love and joy and so forth, and through the music, so to bring that energy through. So it's completely preposterous to me to think that I could do that and have blood, dri- you know, dripping from my mouth or something. <laughs> 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 Eating animal food, you know, it it's, it goes totally against that to to stab with one hand and then play music that's going to be uplifting others, you know, with the other hand. I I just saw directly how violent it is to kill animals for food. Even though I had been doing it all my life, I never really realized it till that moment. And uh, I just found. That the more I purified my my um, mind and body, the more the music, the more music, music could come through, and so it's essential to me, I think, from the from the creative outlet. And then I was able to create some new kinds of things, like I have an album out called Animal Songs, which is original piano music blended with the voices of the animals that we mostly that we eat, so you know, cows, pigs, chickens, ducks, and geese, and so forth which are animals that really um, have very beautiful voices. Uh, If we can tune into their voices, I think we can hear that there's a being there, not just an object that is there for us to eat. Jen Ed.
7: Creatively, I am a spoken word artist. I'm also a performing artist. So um, I get to write and and perform about whatever's on my mind. And so far, actually, I haven't done a vegan-slash-vegetarian project In my kind of other life, uh, I get to do a lot of uh, lecturing and teaching at universities, um, and I don't know if you guys know about um, NCORE, the National Conference on Organized Resistance. This is my third year going there, and it's actually happening next weekend at American University. and So I get to go there, and and, um, I lead workshops in spirituality and activism, actually, and how the two... Uh, work together. Um, and always vegetarianism comes up and just why that's important as far as spirituality goes, and how that is also an activist practice and how kind of being true to your activist and/ or spiritual self can directly feed into or in many cases, and in many schools of thought has to, um, feed into what you consume on every level. I recently ran into two participants in the first workshop that I did at Encore, which was three years ago. Mm-hmm. And one is now working in a vegan restaurant and said, you know, after your workshop, I oh, gave up eating meat. Awesome. Oh, that's <laughs> so that was awesome. kind of really cool to, um, to, to experience that. Um, and the other one has, has dedicated her life to feminism.
1: Now we're going to play you a little spoken word piece by Goose Love, a.k.a. Rich Montone. This is his spoken word piece called Bleeding Jazz.
6: I bled jazz last night. I awoke two notes, stained on my pillow, having crawled out in my ears, slow and thick, like ketchup or molasses, as I squint to hear the sound stain of this jazz on my pillow, hear its wailing resonant voice like an earthquake in a china shop saving the souls of slaughtered animals slaves butchered flesh cut away barbecued while the lynch mob cooed and jazz was there catching the salty rain that fell from the sore eyes catching the bloody head shell catching the mouthful of slick red paste catching the backful of hate and pain and scar tissue and jazz is the translation of this slaughter so silent you know it's all wrong and so calm you know we all just died in my dream that was jazz bleeding from my ear last night I bled jazz. It was a schoolboy football injury, a romanticized past, a homoerotic jock locker room talk. Jazz was my penis size compared to other guys who preferred Leonard Skinner. And Alabama was never my home, so I guess I'm all alone. I'm heavy, big, gentle, in the blue room with jazz holding hands with another man. He holds hands with another man. Turpentine sweat fills my eyes while I bite hard on rubber molded and shaped around my teeth. A relief map showing me how my meal died. And and in the blue light, jazz looks all right. But in my dreams, I screamed from within. Screamed from a place that I had never been. Like Prague or Moscow. Or any majestic city that loses its legend as soon as you enter. By airport. There's no czar anymore. Empire and omnipotence has been reduced to a mascot to sell tourists' rental cars, souvenir soap jars, themed liquor bars that liken breasts to headlights on cars, and jazz is so far away from such crass commodification that I am pleased to call it mine and to have it in my dreams. You see, I bled jazz last night like a wet dream had upon me, this sticky wet jazz on my chest, a tattoo of what I am yet to understand, the knee-missing link between masculinity and famine. So examine yourself for jazz. Examine yourself, for jazz, examine yourself, for and you will see that jazz is not me. But it certainly came to me in a dream, for it leapt out my ear like gasoline ejaculate of a pump unsheathed. Wild nozzle loose, trigger pull back like flatware when my friends come to visit because my parents don't trust them. Painting the air with the gasoline and the fumes, exhume a match from the blues man, cigar box, and do stand in the way, and you will bleed jazz too, you will bleed jazz too, you will bleed jazz too. Thanks.
0: All
1: right. And that was the end of question number three. Do you have any questions about question number three, Megan? I
0: don't think so. Do you? Um, I don't
1: know. Uh, um, I I think creativity and um, veganism and spirituality are all, it's like a very powerful trio. It's kind of like the Holy Trinity Uh, for me.
0: Like the Matrix. Back to the Matrix.
1: No, the Matrix. Well, maybe. But, you know. I think um, spirituality and veganism. I think maybe veganism enhances spirituality, and spirituality enhances creativity. Ah. What do you think about that?
0: I'll go for it. Anything to make people vegan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, vegan is the starting block. Um, So our next question, is it my turn to read a question? Sure, you read that one. I thought I read the last one.
0: Let's read that one. I'll read number five.
1: This one has a lot of words. I think it would be better if you read it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you're right. All right, question number four that we asked our interviewees. Eastern religions tend to embrace vegetarianism, whereas Western religions tend to be used to justify the use of animals for food and entertainment. What are your thoughts on organized religion and its views of animals? How can animal rights activists reach out to people who use religion as a justification to exploit animals? And here's what they had to say.
6: Scott Kessel.
4: In the Bible, with the verses, you know, things like, Thou shalt not kill and do unto others, what Western, the Western mindset seems to have just taken the notion that the human being is superior and, and that thou shalt not kill and do unto others is only applies to other humans. And we don't actually do such a hot job of that, even among humans. If people could be convinced of the interconnectedness of of all life and the importance of all life, the way that we all need to work together on this earth to continue to function and survive, that might be a way to approach people who use religion. Somehow we would need to get to the core of their belief system and find out what is it about the way that you interpret this religious passage, whatever it is, that makes you feel like you can justify taking of Another being's life. It has to be a one to one thing. It's not going to be anything that can be done with mass media campaigns. It's all about understanding the person that you are talking with and really being able to get into their shoes and understand why they feel the way that they feel. And I don't believe that you can change somebody's mind until you can meet them on that level. It ties in with, from my spiritual practice, with the martial arts. And that if you're sparring with somebody, you need to understand them for who they are to be able to spar with them correctly Jen Ed
7: Well, the very first thing that comes to my mind is just kind of the roots of many organized religions. perhaps those roots are used wrongly to justify many things, and it seems outdated and mm, I would even venture to say narrow minded to hold on to those things you know such as you know uh, animal sacrifices and Yes, yeah, certainly we haven't held on to the the various uh, sexual rights or or human sacrifices. that also used <laughs> to go along with a lot of a lot of those religions too. It does seem a little um, a little more of an excuse at this point. perhaps the connection between at least Western organized religion is more about capitalism and consumerism. Um, and using the religion to justify the consumption of animals and the mass production of of um, animal products, rather than the actual religious basis for for those practices. You know, I, I could also say that that most Eastern religions are very much about a, a personal path and individual, as in. You know we are responsible for ourselves as the individuals and then we feed into all of our surroundings and not only are humans valued but also the earth we walk on the air we breathe you know everything is, is encapsulated in a spiritual practice whereas popular religions of, of now or the codified religions don't seem to see that as clearly, perhaps. You know, the, the spiritual practice is not embracing all of our surroundings as impacting us as individuals and us as a whole. They also tend to place God or divine nature as other rather than as us.
3: Will Tuttle. I am faced with that almost every week because um, I travel uh, to unity churches primarily, and unity is... Um, Pretty big movement in this country. There's about 800 churches in pretty much every city in the United States, and it's a progressive Christian religion. And most every Sunday, I'm giving the sermon. I'm giving the Sunday morning talk and um, doing a workshop on developing intuition and doing a concert. And so, uh, for the last maybe five or six years, I've been really consciously trying to bring the vegan message of compassion to all beings into the sermons on Sunday morning and you have people sitting there who just don't expect that they're going to get hit with that, you know, they come to church they're not going to expect anyone's going to start telling them uh, that compassion and peace and spiritual growth had anything to do with what they're eating, on, especially that they you know, maybe eating burgers and hot dogs and fish sticks is, is uh, cruel, so I've you know, I'm constantly Working with this um, this uh, this question of how to bring this message into organized religion in a way that uh, people can can accept it, and I've I've found that uh, the teachings of Jesus really are great. You know, they basically are pointing straight in that direction. uh, That the Eastern teachings also point straight in that direction. Um, Unity's founders were vegans, believe it or not, back in the eight, 1930s. They, uh, vegan being the definition of someone who eats no animal foods, wears no leather, and not for health reasons, but strictly out of compassion for animals. So even before that word was invented, they were living that. But the they whole, it's so interesting because, you know, the entire Unity movement now doesn't even know that they were vegans and doesn't want to know, and um, the... the the Unity Village uh, headquarters, which is in uh, Kansas City, was for years was a vegetarian place, and, and until the 1960s. And now, if you go there, you can't even hardly get anything vegetarian. So it's all been forgotten in the matter of only you know, and repressed really in only like 40 or 50 years. So um, you can see that there's a lot of you know that organized. Pe- I, don't think I don't think it's religion. I think it's just people um, really uh, on a deep level. Uh, are uncomfortable with the vegetarian message because I think we all feel guilty about what we're doing uh, to animals. But I think it's really religion's place to raise consciousness. And if we don't have religious traditions that raise our consciousness about the cruelty we routinely uh, inflict on animals, then we should create them. We should create religions or create religious teachings that reflect that. And I think that is happening more and more. We realize that we you know we, we can create our own religious traditions we don't have to just take what we've inherited we can we can um, imbue new meaning into the scriptures and also interpret them in a new way to, um, that's appropriate because you know even hundred and fifty years ago people used the Bible to justify slavery of, of humans, and they try to use it today to justify the slavery and killing of animals. but we know in our hearts, I think everyone knows that You can't really
6: justify that. Nancy Love.
5: I was looking at a book that I actually did some of the illustrations for called Conscious Eating by Gabriel Cousins, MD. He's a well-known alternative physician. And he talks about how all of the major religions worldwide teach some part of vegetarianism being important. That's Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Jainism, Sikhism, Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity. But and i found this so interesting buddha is quoted in the lankavator and his wisdom, and he, he praises vegetarianism for the sake of purity. And he actually predicts thousands of years ago that, and this is a quote some people in the future who, being under the influence of the taste of meat, will string together various ways, many sophisticated arguments to defend meat eating. But meat eating in any form, in any manner, in any place is unconditionally. And once and for all, prohibited meat eating. I have not permitted to anyone. I do not permit, and I will not permit. And pretty much, it's that meat is addictive. As Neil Bernard's wonderful organization's Physicians for Responsible Medicine, uh, has given much, uh, published much evidence about the health effects, but also the addictive effects of animal products, and you know, Bernard's written the book about food addiction, people will figure out ways to make it okay. It says right in the Bible, thou shalt not kill. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. Oh, but it's okay to kill animals.
8: Rich Montone. Holy cow. You didn't study for this one, did you? Well, I think (laughs) when it comes to Western religions, the five, you know, major world religions that most people think of would be Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, and Islam. My greatest experience is with the Western religion of Christianity. What I've learned in the last six months is it's actually kind of funny to call it a Western religion because it's actually an Eastern religion based on its point of origin. But I know what people mean, you know, when they say Western religion and they're talking about Christianity and there's certainly no problem with that. I would say that the justifications for the eating and the exploitation of animals that i've seen in western christianity comes primarily from people attempting to quote particular bible verses in support of the theory or the idea that it's okay to exploit animals for food or for clothing or for labor or for other purposes i think generally It's a bad idea and it's bad theology to look through the Bible and find a handful of verses that, taken out of context, seem to very clearly articulate the same vision that you are trying to articulate and to therefore claim that God has mandated that it is best for us as humans to do that particular thing. I think that's bad to do if you're trying to argue in favor of eating animals. I think it's bad to do if you're arguing in favor of veganism, because what it does is it trivializes the scripture as a whole. It's hard to understand one particular line of scripture without the context that the rest provides. For example, if you look at the covenant law that was written in the book of Exodus in the ninth or 8th century BCE, it has a particular set of laws that it tells people to live by. If you look at the Deuteronomistic Code, which is found in the book of Deuteronomy, which was written in the 7th or the 6th century BCE, a few hundred years later, the laws that people are supposed to live by change. And if you look at the Holiness Code, which is in the book of Leviticus, and it was written in the 6th or the 5th century BCE, still a few hundred years later, the law changes again. And so what you see is over hundreds of years of time, laws that you find in the Bible are changing. So you can flip to one part of the Bible and the law is saying one thing, and you can flip to another part of the Bible and you see that the law is saying another thing. And so what I think all that demonstrates is that over time, people's relationship with how to live a godly life, and when I say godly, I mean whatever what any religion takes to be divine. So that might be the Buddha, or that might be Jesus Christ, or that might be some other deity that is particularly meaningful to a person. But as the Bible shows that divine law changes over time, um, we should recognize that you can't quote a particular piece of the Bible and then say, hey, this is clearly what God is saying, because our relationship with God or our relationship with the Buddha is alive, and therefore it's open to interpretation, and it's open to us putting our own agency into decisions that we are making about what kind of way we are going to honor the divine in our life. Whereas texts that were written 2,500 or 3,000 years ago might have thought that a good way to honor a particular deity in a particular place in a particular time was to exploit animals for labor and clothing and food, um, that might not necessarily apply. Because, as the law changed throughout the times that the Bible was written, it has continued to change to this time, and uh, I would encourage people to have a two way relationship with honoring their God through their diet and their life's choices. Carol Adams
9: I think almost every religion we know of finds that people who are adherents of any religion we know of find a way to justify what they're doing, whether it has to do with oppressing gays and lesbians or eating animals. Uh, I think when people adopt a defensive attitude and don't want to examine what they're doing that's harmful, they often fall back on religion. There are lots of Buddhists who eat animals and Buddhist gatherings where animals are eaten. So I don't think it's only a Western thing. The thing about the West, the religions of the book, Judaism, uh, Islam, and and Christianity, is that there's a book to follow. As a result of that, the book gets turned to, the book being the Bible or the, the Hebrew Bible. These passages exist as scripture. But Buddhism is a little more diverse in terms of how it uses written material, so that act of justification that we're so used to in the West and the United States. and At the American Academy of Religion, we did the first animals and religion panel 15 years ago almost now, and I found that people are very knee-jerk in their defenses, and that they're taking sort of the lies they were told as children and channeling them through their religious attitudes without really approaching with an open mind what the passages say. So, okay, to get beyond and go to a specific. Say we're having a debate with a Christian. First of all, as I say in living among meat eaters, you have to remember that people will throw anything at you in order to defend their meat eating. And people who are religious will use their religion. People who are atheists won't. Uh, but it's the dynamic of a meat eater vegetarian relationship that meat eaters are gonna defend it to the hilt and use everything they can think of. This is why we hear arguments about Inuets and arguments about, you know, plants suffer, all of that is because of meat eaters are crazily trying to defend what they're doing. And I actually advise not getting into those kinds of conversations and debates. I do not think it's fruitful. However, if you're in that situation or just talking one-on-one and somebody says yes, but the Bible says it's okay to eat animals. In fact, um, when you look at Genesis 126, which is where the, the idea of domination uh, is introduced, that we're given dominion over the other animals, it's tied to Genesis 129, which is what food we were given to eat which is clearly a plant-based diet. So you can't have one without the other. Whatever dominion we've been granted, if you're accepting this part of the Bible as some sort of governing discipline, whatever dominion we were granted is dominion within a vegan world. I think that this is what people fail to see. The other thing is that then you get into what's called sort of proof texting, but the word dominion in that passage in other places simply means For instance, that the sun has dominion over the world, over the the earth. That doesn't mean the sun can usurp or oppress. Those words are not in the meaning of dominion. That's why when you get into arguments, people are sort of crazily trying to find anything possible. Jesus ate fish or the miracle of the loaves and fishes. And one of the things that I respond there is, well, what would Jesus do now? That the issue isn 't what happened back then, even though there are some who say Jesus was a vegetarian, but we don 't even have to get into reinforcing that. The question is, would Jesus want to see the reverse of the miracle of the loaves and fishes, in which five or fifteen times as much grain gets fed into an animal, and then protein comes out? This is not the kind of stewardship that uh, Jesus would would, I think, have felt was fair or good, that most of Jesus' sayings are really about money and sharing your wealth. And Americans don't share their wealth. They are very selfish in a sense when it comes to meat-eating, because by supporting a meat-eating economy, we're hurting the environment. We're using up a lot of grain that wouldn't be wasted if it were not being fed through an animal to become protein. So we're not being good stewards of the world if we're meat eaters. I would turn a conversation towards that sort of exploration.
1: Next, we're going to play part of a song from Will Tuttle's CD, Animal Songs. This song is To Be Free. And if you want to find out more about that, check out our show notes at www.veganradio.com. We'll be right back with one more question. Those were great answers, Maggie.
0: I don't think you can call me Maggie on the radio.
1: Really? For some reason, I just had a vision of me spanking you. <laughs> 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 I remember your birthday's past. Oh, how you deserved it. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Let's see. Um, oh, it's my turn again. Is spirituality a vital aspect of moving civilization towards a day when animals have rights and are treated compassionately, or can we get there as a non-spiritual people? What do you think, Megs?
0: I kind of think we need the spirituality.
1: Yeah, me too. That's why I asked the question.
0: I know. Um, and spirituality for awareness that's and right. compassion.
1: Compassion and awareness. Those are the two of the gifts of spiritual life. And <laughs> two of the. Feelings I have when I'm near you, Megan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Don't believe them, listeners.
1: (laughs) Anyway, this is our final question, and here they are.
8: Carol Adams.
9: I'd like to believe it's true. I'd like to believe that when you become more spiritually aware of yourself and your situation, your relatedness to the world and to creation that you would then see, oh, animals are a part of creation. Uh, How will I respond to that? How will I honor that interconnectedness? Clearly, that interconnectedness that I experience through my spirituality requires that I do something, that I not just accept their suffering or perpetuate it. And that's one reason I wrote the inner art of vegetarianism, was not just to show vegetarians that there was a spiritual aspect To their vegetarianism and veganism spiritual practitioners that vegetarianism or actually veganism is one way to express your spirituality but i find that it's very difficult to talk to people who are meat eaters and say followers of uh, a sort of new age sense of spirituality they don't just like most meat eaters they cloak themselves in defenses and they don't want to hear And they'll usually come back and say, well, the worms are going to eat us. Why are we afraid of being eaten? And it's all part of the natural world. They sort of naturalize meat eating. And so I find that placing our hope in spirituality may not fulfill the hope we have. I do think many people are afraid to hear about what's happening to animals. They say, don't tell me. It's so upsetting. I don't want to know. And I think one way for us to approach that is not to say, "Well, you ought to know and, and, and you know sort of be lecturing about it or whatever, but to help them access their ability to handle the information. And that's where I think a spiritual practice comes in.
6: Scott Kessel.
4: Spirituality will sure help <laughs> if, if everybody took some time even to just sort of reflect. On who they are and why they're here, and how grateful they they should be for even what little they have, they would have a lot more compassion and tolerance for other people, and in time, hopefully, all beings, not just other humans. Without spirituality, I think it would have to be an intellectual game that would have to be played with people to convince them with scientific proof the necessity to be kind the animals. But it feels like through, spiritual, through a spiritual practice, people are able to be more in touch with the compassionate side of who they are and of life. And you don't necessarily need to be convinced in your brain to follow your heart. And A lot of times you have to unconvince your brain to be able to follow your heart.
6: Gen
7: Ed, I personally think that Spirituality is the only way to move forward, period, in in any context, uh, whether you're talking about women's rights or animal rights or civil rights or gay rights or anything. Because, again, it, to me, spirituality is about openness and it's about respect, not just respect for... You know the people that you like. <laughs> it's about everything. It's about the earth. It's about the stars and the sun and and if, and every living being, which includes rocks and soil. So yes, I would say absolutely um, a certain spiritual aspect. And but again, to me, spirituality isn't something that's codified. It's not something that if you do a b c and d you are now a spiritual person. It's about having some kind of connection to the fact that we are all interrelated. Therefore there's not too much dividing me from my dog or the bed that I'm sitting on as I'm talking to you, you know, we're all we all break down to the same thing. So to me that kind of a spiritual awareness, one that connects us all together, will definitely begin to, or would actually have to, you know, by default, almost elevate the rights of animals and elevate the rights of everything, everything that, that is alive on an energetic level.
8: Rich Montone. Well, I think words are powerful things. Some people say, when you're figuring out how to say something, some people say, oh, it's just semantics, but it's not. Metaphors are very powerful things. You know, you can say school is a prison and you can say school is a garden. Depending on what you say can greatly affect the way that a particular person or even you yourself approach school. So when you say, is spirituality an essential component of bringing a world into being that respects the rights of animals, I would say yes, absolutely, in the way that I understand spirituality. I was at a wonderful sermon last week, last week at All Souls Church in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where Forrest Church, who is the senior minister of All Souls Unitarian Church, was giving this sermon where he said, We need to read people's spirituality or their religiosity from the text of their lives, not simply from the labels that they use to describe themselves because there are some people for example that would describe themselves as Christian whose lives might not model the kind of love and compassion that was commended to Christians by Um, say for example George Bush (laughs) yes exactly thank (laughs) you and there are people who wouldn't identify as Christians whose lives are the perfect model of the example that was given to Christians by Jesus. And so Forrest Church argues that we need to read one's spirituality or their religiosity by looking at what they do and not necessarily what they say. And if one has an awareness and a mindfulness of their spiritual identity, and they own that, and they employ that in determining the way that the text of their life is written, I can't see how that wouldn't deliver us to a place where, um, for lack of a better word, you could say heaven would exist on earth and the rights of animals would be respected. and, And without that kind of spiritual awareness, whether it's named or unnamed, just that awareness of knowing that compassion and love is the greatest thing that we can do with our lives. Because not only does it bless the world with so much joy, but it in turn only revisits that joy back upon us. Only by being engaged with that, and, and I call that spiritual. Other peoples might not call it spiritual, but I do. And when one is engaged with that, that's the kind of action and the kind of activism and the kind of mindfulness that will deliver us to a place where all beings are allowed a ticket to the circus of joy, if you will. Nancy Love.
5: I remember when I was interested in living in a community, and statistics for communities are they don't last. People fight, they argue, and they fall apart. The only ones that have really lasted are the ones that have a spiritual basis. So I think spirituality is one of the strongest motivators people have. We may be able to accomplish a lot without spirituality. The problem is religion, of course, where people start arguing over what color God's eyes are. But true spirituality is is way beyond that. It was way beyond dogma.
3: Will Tuttle. Well, the way I look at it, I think that it has to be spiritually based. However, you know, the word spiritual. I guess it depends on how you define that. And and to me, um, our true nature as human beings is spirit. That's my my feeling and my my sense of it is that we're not just a material thing that was born and will die, just an object. That what we are essentially is consciousness, and what animals are essentially is consciousness. And we manifest we manifest you know we express in the physical world. And that we're here, really, that this world is a school. It's a, it's a way for us to learn. So we're here to grow in consciousness, to grow in understanding, and in and, and our ability to be loving, and to contribute to each other. So, ultimately, that you know, that is a spiritual, the spiritual dimension of ourselves that we're cultivating, which is our true nature. And so, if I'm spending my energy not doing that, if I'm focusing just on how separate I am, how I can get what I want for myself, how I can be more comfortable, those kinds of things, basically that's where the misery and the suffering and the violence and the brutality are unavoidable because if you have everyone doing that, then there's this basic self-centered motivation, and that just creates horror and conflict. So when we realize that what we are is... more than that, and I think that takes an awakening, like a spiritual awakening to just realize that our our culture does not encourage that. Our culture does just the, the opposite to corporations, you know, want nothing more than for us to think that we're just consumers. That's the worst thing for us spiritually, and uh, when, we stuck, when we have an awakening spiritually, then naturally we begin to look out of our eyes at the world in a new way, and we begin to feel our oneness with other forms of life and a sense of, of kindness and, and gentleness and compassion just naturally is born in us. And it is spiritual. And we may never go to church, <laughs> which has nothing to do with spirituality, but it's it's the truth that we are, comes alive. You know, I just finished writing this book, The World Peace Diet, which which in which I, what I really did was look into the roots of our culture and tried an experiment, which I felt, really had never been done before, and that was to take our treatment of animals, which usually in our culture is in the periphery. You know, it's kind of, we look at all the problems in the world and we think, oh yeah, this problem of animal suffering and cruelty. It's just one on a long list of problems, probably towards the end, you know, it's not that important. And instead of looking at it that way, I, I just put it right in the very center and realized really through the writing of this book that our cruelty towards animals for food is the driving force the primary driving force behind all the problems that we have as a culture because it requires us to numb ourselves to the suffering we're causing others and we do that every you know two or three times a day with what's on our plate and then we naturally begin to do that in, in every other aspect of our life we we disconnect and we become experts at disconnecting and numbing ourselves and so the real the only way we'll have peace on this earth and happiness and joy universally uh, is if we change the way we're eating change the way we look at animals instead of seeing them as commodities we see them as beings and that's essentially a spiritual step it's a spiritual breakthrough but it, and it's the the required I would say it is the number one most important step that anyone can take if they really want to contribute to world peace is to stop eating animal foods of any kind and to see and stop seeing any being as a commodity and treat all beings with respect and kindness
0: that's it for our show if you are curious about anything you heard about from the interviews and
1: from the naked news
0: yep then check our show notes at www.veganradio.com
1: we also have an email list on the site if you sign up you'll get sent uh, the news about our latest shows and happenings there's a very low frequency of um, emails we send out we don't spam you or anything
0: and our next show is going to be based on the vegan cure. If you know anybody cured by veganism, anybody who had um, diabetes or obesity, cancer...
1: Goiter, gout.
0: Yep, all, all of the above. Give Swollen a, colon. Give us, give us an email so that we might interview them for our next show.
1: Um, we also would ask if you like the show that you go to iTunes Music Store and give us a good review so we can uh, get our ratings up there and more people will find out about us if we're better ranked
0: and right now we are going to go to Scott Kessel from Ronnie Arbo and Daisy Mayhem um, the drummer from Daisy Mayhem
1: we just interviewed him didn't we?
0: we did, it's true
1: (laughs) and uh, the song is called Own Road to Heaven it was written by our friend who's a band member named Anand he's not vegan yet but we're working on him (laughs) from a distance yeah exactly <laughs> um, and thanks for listening this is Derek Goodwin
0: and I'm Megan Shackleford
1: and you're listening to
0: Vegan Radio, Vegan Radio! <laughs> Woo-hoo!
1: Bye-bye. who loves you baby
2: I find myself staring out into the void where mysteries whisper secret dreams certainties destroy when I'm feeling down it gets cold and dark empty and alone when I open my heart I can feel the heat of every rock and stone nobody told me what to believe so I guess I'll keep Wearing this heart upon my sleeve